Hi everyone, it's Justin, and it's the first conversation of this new season, and I'm really glad you're here. There are times when the world feels overwhelmingly vast and difficult to comprehend. It's too much. It's too large to experience it all. But there's also these little moments that are magical when the world feels quite small. I had this experience this past year in the height of the early days of the pandemic when we were all locked down in our different homes. I was here in my apartment in Los Angeles. And if you've heard any of my previous episodes, you know that I discovered a lot of new things to do and new things about myself, including a new renewed love for reading. So one of these nights, I picked up an iPad and I looked through my picks for a new book to read in order to escape reality for a little bit and find another place to be just before bedtime. One of these titles stood out to me in particular. The cover had some familiar looking text, some comfortable looking illustrations of a country hillside in the distance with two little sheep and it's upstaged in the foreground by a grazing pig and a roaming chicken and along the edge were some olive branches kind of cradling the edge of the book frame. It was called An Olive Grove at the Edge of the World, How Two American City Boys Built a New Life in Rural New Zealand. So at this time where I'm trapped in my apartment, I was so intrigued. (laughs) So as I began to read, I found myself slowly getting to know this world, what it's like to wake up to a sea of olive trees in the quiet mornings with the smells and sights of country life just out of reach of the city, what it's like to drive a treacherous road during a heavy rainstorm to get to the other side of paradise. And through these characters, I learned all kinds of things. I learned new words. I met new neighbors, new friends, new animals. Every night before bed became an adventure to look forward to in my mind, all through the eyes of Jared the writer of this whimsical tale. So I suddenly became curious about all the ins and outs of olive tree farming. I would watch YouTube videos after YouTube video on different methods of harvesting olives, how they made olive oil, what these groves look like, all these things that the author had taken me through in his own curious story. At least I thought it was a story. About halfway through... Something occurred to me. Maybe this wasn't fiction at all, but actually a true story. Could it be? Could these wonderful friends and neighbors with nightly dinner parties really exist? Is there really a pet pig? Does the chicken coop really get invaded by the sneaky sparrows? Is this olive grove really at the edge of the world? Of my world? I had to check. I immediately went to my Instagram and searched Jared Goulian. There he was. Author, lover of books, nature, and animals. Writer of An Olive Grove at the Edge of the World. So, okay, I'm now scrolling. I'm scrolling down. Imagine the look on my face when I realized I was looking at the very real images of things I had been imagining in my mind this whole time through this book. 
there it was, the paddock, the expansive, colorful sunrise over the New Zealand horizon, the wisteria pouring over the farmhouse, even Noddy the horse. I couldn't believe this mini shire of a space really existed. So I had to let this guy know how much I enjoyed his book, and I did. And he responded. From one Instagram chat to the next, Jared and I struck up a little bit of a digital friendship over the next year, getting to know one another, one post at a time. So as the world gets even smaller, I convinced him, the man himself, to take a break from the Grove for a couple of hours and from writing his just-released new sci-fi thriller called The Last Beekeeper. And yes, I'm reading it, and yes, you should too. And I convinced him to spend some time talking with me about life, about love, fear, and hope from across the globe in Martinborough, New Zealand. I still can't believe he actually said yes. Thank you, Jared. But I also learned from talking with him that this isn't the first time he's had to just say yes to something. Here's my lovely chat, just in conversation with my new friend, Jared Goulian. And just on a more sadder note, since the recording of this episode, Dougal the pig has crossed into the Rainbow Bridge. So I know that Jared, CJ, and all of us that read along with you are all missing the little guy. Please enjoy my chat with Jared Goulian from an olive grove at the edge of the world. There he is. Hello. Hi. Sorry, it took me a little while. I, uh, I, it was buried in spam. Yeah, I don't know why it does that sometimes, but you know, I was just thinking, it's always nice to have a little technical uh, battle to go through to uh, whet a uh, conversation appetite. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't quite be right if we didn't have it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it looks great over there. Is You got like a little setup going, huh? A little bit? Uh, this is just, we're uh, living next door to where right, we yeah. actually live. Tell me about so, that a little um, bit. Uh, we are demolishing our house, <laughs> wow. doing major renovations and, uh, you know, stripping it back to studs. It's, it's pretty much everything. Wow. And through yeah. a, a happy set of coincidences, uh, we were able to move into the house next door while our renovations were happening. So here we are. Um, a house next door as in like a neighbor's house? Uh, our neighbors moved away and the okay. house was empty and available. So here we are. Oh, man. Um, and yeah. uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's lifestyle, what they call in New Zealand, a lifestyle block. So it's a big, it's a small farm basically. Mm-hmm. So we've got 20 acres next door and, uh, and that's the, that's the property that I, that I wrote about. Mm-hmm. And uh, here is another 20 acre block. And uh, so the house is empty easy for us to move into it mm-hmm. and we've got all of our stuff stashed in the upstairs bedrooms and uh kind of in a in a, a container and in november our house will be finished and we can move back into it wow well that's something to look forward to though i mean are, you're excited yeah. about it right um absolutely let's are you using your new mic now i am yes it's, yeah it sounds pretty good um, okay good 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 it's uh you know it's what this uh this author I, I follow recommended for doing, um, you know, audiobooks, and, and I, it's going to be a while before I can do my audiobook, but it's been on my mind. So it was a good prompt yeah. to just do it. 
I'm actually really excited about that, and I'm totally gonna, gonna buy that when that comes out because, um, and now, now I have it in. So I have this physical form, um, which, to be honest, I just got it just for the like um, picture version of this. I actually got your book um, digitally. Yeah. On yeah. on Kindle, the it was the title alone that got me. And That's I, good to hear. Yeah, and I know that you've talked about. I've listened to a couple interviews of you. I know that you've talked about the title a lot and how that came to be, and it was something else before this. And so, yeah, so it was um, originally it was some blog posts that you kind of turned into a book. Well, originally, what happened was that um, I knew I wanted to write a book, but I decided. Essentially, I decided to to apply. Um, I work in software development, and I wanted to apply lean software development principles to writing a book. So that meant I wanted to release early and often in small segments. So what I did was I started a blog to just release a you know thousand word story every weekend, and I did that for quite some time until I had content for a book. But always planning to have it end up as a book. So I had the kind of that idea in mind. And uh, I tested a bunch of titles, but an olive grove at the edge of the world was the one that won hands down. Absolutely. And uh, so, so that's what I went with. So it was it was basically all just experimentation and trying things out. And that's how it came to be. Yeah. So it's and it's not just that the um, the title itself, but then the little like simple artwork at the bottom. And then the, uh, I don't know what that's called at the top, the how to American city boys built a new life in rural New Zealand. Yep. The tagline, the tagline. So how to American city boys built a new life in rural New Zealand at the time that I needed to read something. That's what I needed at the time. You know, like I needed, I needed to go on some adventure. And so I was like, Oh, well I'm one American city boy, but if there's another one going on, I want to see what this is about. Right. Um, so yeah. And so it was, uh, and I'm, I have to confess, I'm not a big reader. I am now, but, um, this was, I mean, pretty much close to when we locked down here in Los Angeles and I was kind of forced to do more with my time and, you know, I can only watch Netflix for so many hours and, yeah. Um, and because of my job, I'm always on my phone. I'm always in front of a screen as you probably relate to. And, um, so I needed something, um, even though I didn't, it was the Kindle version that I was reading, but I needed something to kind of do that was not just like action in my face. I needed to slow down. I needed something somewhere to escape to. So for me, um, your book was like this pandemic escape and it was like really a comfort I mean, I feel like now I already kind of know you from reading, <laughs> from reading the book. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just was, I just was so in love with these two guys and this olive grove. And then also the neighbors, the way that you write them into there. I'm like, man, I want to like, I want to be in this place, you know? And it was uh, about halfway through that I didn't, I didn't even realize this was like a true story. Oh, you thought it was fiction when you first I did. Up. Yeah. I totally thought wow. it was fiction and I don't know, I don't know how I missed that or whatever, but, um, I think, I think actually what brought me into this idea that it was actually a real thing is when you started putting, inserting recipes in there. Oh yeah. Which is really cool by the way. And I'm also recently gluten-free again. 
So I was like, oh, oh these are things I can experiment with. I have yet to try one of these recipes, yep. but I'm going to do it, I think. Um, <laughs> but uh, They're yeah. good. The focaccia, I, I really recommend the focaccia if you're gluten-free because that okay. focaccia is so good. Oh, you don't yeah. miss the gluten at all. Okay. I, that's a, yeah. Actually, I just was looking at that one right before this, actually. So that's Providence. I think around that time is when I said, wait a minute, this is a real dude? And uh, <laughs> and then I think that's when I, being the social media guy that I am, I was like, well, yeah. let's see if he's on social media. So I added you on Instagram and Facebook and all these things. And I remember, you know, I think I just briefly looked at your Instagram account and just started seeing the property that was now that I had been imagining in my head. And at the time, that was like this immensely magical moment. If you can imagine, like you think you're reading this like fictitious story yeah, and you're like, and you're, man, I wish this was a real place. And then you're like, wait a minute, it is a real place. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Yeah. I love that story. Yeah, and um, and and this guy actually named is named Jared, and like he's a real <laughs> dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. So that was my well, kind I of remember book encounter with your, your book. That you know, I've I've heard from I get emails from people quite often that, uh, and especially during the pandemic, that that similar to you found found the book during the pandemic, and um, because it's one of those books that the chapters are a good size that you can read a chapter before you go to bed. A lot of people have said to me, "Oh, I read a chapter every night before I go to bed," and I was yeah. so upset when it was over. Yeah, um, and it's you know things you never think about. Um, kind of ripples on a pond when, you know, when I started, when we moved out here and uh, I started writing about it, uh, I just was sharing my experience. And then when it kind of, um, it's almost like a, a, a boomerang that comes back at you with these stories, people who've found it. And I got, people send me pictures of um, a guy made for his, his mother's 90th birthday. He made the carrot cake that's in that book. Mm. And you sent me a picture and like, that is, I mean, that's magic. And the way that comes back to you is um, it's kind of, it's a, it's a blessing I never expected when I started writing it. Yeah. I can, I can imagine that. And I had wondered like how many other people were having that experience actually, you know Um, it was, it was for me, one of those things that I looked forward to doing at the end of the day. Makes me so happy to hear that because it's uh it and and because the book deals with our first four years out here it was also i mean still it's it's magic every day out here but um those first four years when we didn't know anything and we're making lots of mistakes and uh it was it was a really really very special time for me because uh i was you know it's a i mean it's a classic fish out of water tale uh, but it was my life and uh, I was learning so much and having so much fun. And I still, you know, I, I have to pinch myself when I um, walk down to the paddocks and I, you know, say hi to our pet pig and, uh, mm. you know, go feed the chickens. And uh, um, I just, I'm really, really love being here and I'm really happy that I get to share it and that other people get to kind of experience it that way as well. And, and that it can provide any kind of small comfort to people is just huge. It makes me really, really happy. I wonder as you were writing it, I'm sure you had some sort of connection encounter too. Did you have, as you were writing these things into the book forum, did you have this sense of that you were connecting back to yourself again, as you're going back through these writings and then then how did you make that connection to the future readers that would be reading it? 
Um, because I, you know, I've always, for me, writing has always, I mean, I've, I've always, always written. Um, I mean, literally, uh, when I was a little kid, uh, you know how when you're a little kid and you get put to bed and you're not supposed to get out of bed and, you know, you have to stay in bed and you can't go out and get, ask for a glass of water. Um, I used to sneak out of bed so that I could write poetry. And, um, wow. It got my mom found me one night. And she's like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "I'm writing poetry." And you know, I was seven, and she that was the she said that was okay. She's like, "You can get out of bed to write a poem because mm. I would lay in bed and think of these poems, and so I would I want to write them down." So that was the one exception to the you can't get out of bed and you know wander around the house. You've been put to bed. I could get up to write poetry, so I had total permission to write poetry. Um, but I've always always written. So when I started writing about living out here. For me, writing is how I kind of figure things out. You know, um, it's how I process things. It's how I um, understand uh, my life and my, my my connections to other people and my connection to events. So I actually made some highlights and I, I feel like I'm going to read a couple of them. Um, okay. Because I feel like these are some key things that, that affected me when I read it, but also some things that maybe told me a lot about who you are as a person. So maybe we can, you can debate that. So, um, and they're like little topics. So the first one is on how you view love. So here's the, here's the um, passage. Um, you're talking about the first time you saw the trees. Honestly, it really did feel a bit like falling in love. I don't know if love at first sight is possible with people. My feelings for CJ have always been more like a bud sprouting than a bomb exploding. But I know now that love at first sight is perfectly possible with trees. So yeah. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, um, and you, you talked about this really beautifully in your book, but when you when you first saw that space and I you know I don't you didn't you didn't go into great detail about what that decision process was like when you fi- finally actually moved out there but when you when you went out there you, there must have been some moment when you made this kind of self discovery and like man this is like this is my next step this is me I feel like this is uh my soul is entering into this space and man this is life changing it was. It yeah. was absolutely when I saw the trees in the olive grove. Yeah. Uh, because we were living in, in Wellington City, which is the capital in New Zealand, um, which is, it's not a giant city. It's what, I think maybe 300, 350,000 people. Mm. But um, we were living in, you know, a kind of uh, inner suburb uh, of the city. And uh, CJ had come out to the Wadarapa Valley for work and he'd seen a bunch of properties and he saw uh, this property and came home and was like, oh, we have to move out there. And I was like, there's no way. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And we're just not doing that. And um, CJ and I, uh, I think one of the reasons why our relationship is successful is because we, at different times, uh, one of us is the one to push forward. And uh, at that point, he was the one to push forward. And he was like, just come see the place. Because he knew, he knows me. And he <laughs> knew that if I saw the place, yeah. I would get it. Yeah. And so I very reluctantly agreed to come out and look at the property because it was just such a preposterous idea for us to move to 20 acres with an olive grove when we'd never sure. lived in the country. We didn't know anything, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
I mean, it was quite literally that moment when I first saw the olive grove. And, you know, there's a thing about um, olive trees that the, the underside of the leaves is kind of a silvery color. And so when it catches, when the wind blows, they kind of shimmer in the mm, silver. Wow. And, I mean, it is magical. It yeah. is. Olive trees are some of the most amazing trees. Mm. And, uh, you know, when I saw that olive grove, I, I it was really at that moment that it was like, you know, and I mean, I often say that it's like somebody that you love stands you in front of something incredibly beautiful and says, let's make this ours. Mm, yeah. Of course I said, yes. I mean, that, you know, that is, that was truly the moment that I just realized, yes. I mean, you, sometimes you just say yes. Mm -hmm. And that was one of those moments. And, uh, you know, CJ said yes when I, we were living in the States and I really wanted to live overseas. Um, we were living in Chicago. We had been together, we've been together now uh, 27 years. And at the time we'd been together, oh, was it maybe three, four years? And I had always wanted to live overseas, at least for a short time. And uh, I'd never managed to do it. So I really, really wanted to go. And I, at the time, was looking at teaching English in Japan. And I said to CJ, you know, I need to do this. Like, I, I really want to go overseas. And at that moment, you know, he had no desire at that point in time to go to Japan. But uh, he said, yes. He said, okay, I'll go yeah, with you. Yeah. So we, we've done this at different times where one of us is like, let's go have this adventure. And the other one is reluctant, but says, okay, I'm game. Uh -huh. And it's been a really, it, it's been, it's worked. <laughs> yeah, I was going to, I was about to say that there's a theme actually that, uh, I mean, you talk each other into things um, in that yeah, book. Yeah. I mean, with getting a pig, with, <laughs> with uh, how many chickens you're going to get or, you know. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. that, that part of it is actually quite enjoyable. Like, you know, that what's the next thing that they're going to talk each other into getting, you know, you had mentioned that you feel like you, uh, know me a bit through my book, but I, through listening to your podcasts, yeah. I have, I've come to know you in a really interesting way through your conversations with your old friends. Oh yeah. Wow. Okay. It's really fascinating because it's, it's not like you're talking about your friendship with your friends and the things you did together. Like your, your friend that you met on the street and the guy from York. Oh yeah. And um, mm -hmm. also your, your friend uh, Dion, who's in Norway now, like yeah. all these people that um, I feel like, uh, it reminds me of uh, if, you know, it's like I'm getting to know you through the relationship you have through your friends and in doing so fill in pieces of you through yes, that, yeah. which is a really interesting way to to get to know somebody. Yeah. Wow. That's really great feedback. Thanks for saying that. And um, I don't, you know, it's so new. I don't have anybody really telling me how that sounds to them. I mean, I get, I get analytics and I know people are listening all over the world. But it's probably like a writer. You have no idea like what they're thinking about it or, yeah, you yeah, know, but yeah. that's great to hear. That's really an interesting perspective. Yeah. yeah. It's so it's interesting because while I've never, you know, met you except for, you know, today virtually the first yeah, time, yeah. I do have a sense of, of you and your interests and your, um, your, the way you engage with people. And, uh, you know, <laughs> like you mentioned in one thing, you mentioned this kind of off a, a throwaway comment about, it's when you met the guy from York whose name I Pete, can't remember. Pete, yeah. Pete, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and you said you went over to, I think you were in a church and you went over to the other side where the Brits were yeah. and you were looking for somebody who uh, wouldn't turn their eyes yeah. away from you. 
Um, and but you were looking for someone to engage and connect with. Yeah. And that that I mean, I'm such an introvert that I'm I'm the last person in the world to ever cross the <laughs> aisle and go look for people. Yeah. But um, I'd be the one turning my eyes away just because it's my my first habit. Right. Even if it's not my uh, you know, even if I want to connect, it's almost like that habit overtakes it. Mm. But that tells me so much about you. And the way you engage with people and connect with people, um, it's been really interesting l- listening to the podcast. Well, yeah, thank you so much. I hadn't even considered that, actually. Yeah, well, that's an interesting way to segue to this question I have. And that is, um, at least for me, as reading your uh, memoir for in this new space, I think you did a really good job of bringing us as the reader into this new world yourself through your experience. So it wasn't like, Hey, I'm in this place and here's what it's like. You're actually learning along with the reader, which was great. Yeah. Um, new words, new, I mean, because there's, you, you had no experience of any of this before. Exactly. Exactly. And now you just described to me like you've been doing this for 20 years or something. <laughs> <laughs> so um, my question is how often in your life, did you or do you find yourself attracted just diving into new things to learn about like a completely new thing for you or was this the first that's an interesting question um i when i think about it uh i've done that multiple times in my life uh i've years ago when i was living in chicago um i was uh, getting my masters in english lit and i wanted to learn about buddhism so i uh, found a temple and i started going to this buddhist temple for sunday morning meditation and uh then i ended up becoming a volunteer at the temple and uh helping to do everything from throw fundraisers to build a, a, a shelf for shoes at the front door and uh, I really got immersed in it and learned. It was a it was a Korean Zen teacher, and I learned an incredible amount about uh, Zen Buddhism as a result. Um, yeah. But I didn't know anything. I did get a friend to go with me the first time, and uh, then he was like, "Oh, that's that's fine," and he quit going. But I just kept going back. You know, they always say that you regret the things you don't do, and I didn't want to have anything like that. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm here to, to, you know, follow my dreams and live the best life that I can. And yeah. so, um, so, so that's why we ended up going to Japan. And then, um, after that coming to New Zealand. Okay. So you talked about how your writing was all your, always your thing. Is there, do you feel like there's something, uh, do you like, do you feel like there's the traditional sense of the muse? Like, where do you think all this comes from? Do you have this idea of what, brings it out of you where do you go to to find that story or the that makes that pen keep writing i mean i think there's a uh, and you'll learn from me very quickly that i think there's a star trek episode for everything um <laughs> there's an episode of deep space nine called the muse and it's literally about this alien that comes into the space station and literally guides this writer to write these amazing stories but what happens is that she steals their life force as it goes and goes and goes. Uh, but anyway, so do you have something like that? Do you feel that sense or what do you get? What is your idea of that? I have no idea. Mm. I mean, I literally have no idea. And it's something that um, I don't, funny enough, I don't actually spend a lot of time thinking about. I just, um, and, and for me, it's, uh, 
my imagination has always been something that has provided me huge comfort and entertainment and um, joy. <clears throat> and uh, even as a kid, you know, I mean, I was constantly, uh, uh, you know, when I walked to to, to school, I every day daydreamed I was riding this big brontosaurus down a, a river of tar. Yes, perfect. Um, I would uh, sometimes fly in a giant uh, clear spaceship that was a giant bubble. I mean, I had a very active, uh, you know, imaginative life as a child. Yeah. And, and that has always just been with me. And even as I wrote that nonfiction book, an olive grove at the edge of the world. So much of it was, uh, you know, I admit in the front that I made up the quotes that I attributed to the chickens because they didn't actually speak. Sure. But I was sure. always, I just, it's like, for me, it's like, um, you know, uh, an augmented reality app where you see something on your screen, yeah. but it's augmented with something. That's just, that's just. That's how you see the world. Like, yeah. It's just yeah. always. So, um, so I so I don't so it's just imagination to me and it's always mm-hmm. there and there are times that I've been um, uh, like can't figure out what's going to happen next in a story or something but that's that's different because that's um, that's like uh, just trying to figure out what these humans would do mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but it's it never is a question of the muse for me but but again going back to Elizabeth Gilbert she has an amazing TED talk. Um, where she got a standing ovation. Have you ever seen this TED talk she does about it creativity? Sounds familiar, actually. Yes. Uh huh. Because she did all this research on creativity. Because yeah. for her, after Eat, Pray, Love came out, and it was this major global. I did, yes, show. I did see this TED talk. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. And it is. And she talked about how she had to kind of imagine a different way to move forward with her writing because it could have been that her greatest success was behind her and it yep. was stifling. Yeah. And uh, she, she said she likes to use the idea, uh, the, an old idea that people weren't a genius, but they had a genius. Yes. And so the genius gave you your ideas like your muse. And um, yeah. so she will just show up every day at a, a certain time. And she, there's a very funny part where she says, if she's having trouble, she kind of looks to the corner of the room and says, hey, I want the record to show. I'm here. I'm doing my part. Yeah. It's you that's showing up. You're bringing it back. I, yeah, that's such a good TED Talk. You're right. Really it talks good. just about great, that very thing. I like that she creates uh, for herself a way that she can move forward in a creative life without being stifled by fear. Mm. Um, whatever it takes, if she needs to imagine a, a genie in the corner of the room, who cares? Um, yeah. But I've never had, I've, I've, it's not that I haven't kind of suffered from fear of failure because of that's, that's, you know, part of the human experience. Right. But mine has always just been fed by imagination. Yeah. That's funny that you um, mentioned fear. Um, because, uh, I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Um, I like how you use that special voice when you say fear. fear. Um, it's actually because I really like this mic when I do that. Um, but there's a, so one of the highlights from your book that I took out was about how you deal with fear when you say, uh, and this is probably one of my favorite. There's, there's definite moments in this book that you create this. It's kind of like you go into yourself for a minute and you have these incredible cinematic moments about humanity. And this is what I mean. I could have, even before getting on that stupid road, allowed my fear to make my decision. I could have said, I'm never living in paradise because I cannot drive the road to get there and I will not try. So I like highlighted that four times. Uh, 
just because at that point in my life, that was, I was going through this thing about, should I do this? Should I not do that? And it was like, yeah, just do it. Because if you, you're, you, I mean, you're a good example about when you just talked about traveling, if you had not encouraged this idea of not regretting, you would have never ended up where you are. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And so I loved that, that, that whole, that was towards the beginning, I think of the book where you're going down yeah. the road. And that road scenario of like the scary road and driving. And I don't know if I want to drive it in the wind and all this. That was, so, I mean, I was like, who's making a movie of this? This is, yeah, this is great. <laughs> That's um, very kind of you. Yeah. So that, I, I love the, that part. You know, the, the amazing thing about that road is, I mean, and I, I truly was terrified of that road. I mean, I, cause it, it's better now they've made improvements, but I mean, there were these and there still are these drop-offs with like no fence. And, um, and, you know, I grew up in Michigan and, and, you know, if there's a little hill, you think it's a mountain, yeah. there's, there's no mountain in Michigan. Yeah. Um, and, but now, and it took years of me driving over that, that road. Um, but now I'm not afraid of that road. Yeah. And, and it, it, it literally, we moved out here in, uh, 2006 so um, it's been a while. Um, so, you know, all that time, let's say 15 years or so of driving that hill road has finally got me to the point where I can drive it and not be afraid. Because I used to have to, even when I'd been here for five years and I'd have to drive into Wellington, I would have to kind of talk myself like, it's okay, it's okay, you've driven it many yeah, times. Yeah. I was so afraid of that road. But, and, and that's why I put that in the book because I personally learned so much about driving that road, even though I was afraid, yeah. because paradise is on the other side of fear. Mm -hmm. It literally, in, in this case, is. And often in life, that is it. Yeah. Um, and you don't get through those, um, you know, fear is going outside your comfort zone. And we don't grow if we don't go outside our comfort zone. And so that's that road has taught me so much. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. And, you know, actually there's a road like that here that I'm sure you've heard of the one freeway on the California coast. Is that uh, route 66? No, it's literally on the coast of California and oh, it's, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. highway one where big Sur is and all that. Yeah. When I first moved out here, it's one of the first roads I drove down and it's similar. I mean, if you just happen to move your wheel to the right a little bit, you're, you're off the cliff into the ocean. Like it's way yeah. down yeah. there. I had that sort of yeah. same feeling like, Oh my God. And there's little parts of it where only one car can pass through. So yeah, you have to scary. like wait to the other and there's rock slides there all the time. So yeah, it's sort of like this kind of fun, like you're dangerously living in paradise too. Like there's, yeah. you know, like yeah. you're in, you're in it. And then you have these kind of moments. One of the other moments that I loved was when you had that encounter with the moon. Oh yeah. And you mentioned that a lot in the book, but there's this, there's this like really another one of your inward moments where you talk about just, you had on a whim, just went out into the paddock at night and you saw the moon, how it lit up everything. And you had this kind of like one-on-one -on -one mystical, magical time with, with the moon. Can you talk a little bit about your faith experience in that regard as far as mindfulness in this in this lush area where you've had this journey? And also, I'm sure that writing this book and also just the experience of going all the way through that road, right, to this place, it slowed things down to the slowness of life so that the pace could be 
could be seen a little bit more. Like you had the time to really soak that in with the road and with the moon. Um, I definitely, I think that mindfulness is uh, a key part of, uh, in, in, in my my perspective, of uh, uh, a life well lived, um, and a moment where we, you know, and that's whether it's in a, you know it doesn't matter your kind of religious context, whether it's a Christian appreciation of, you know, God's beauty that he's created, or if it's a Buddhist kind of mindfulness of the breath, whatever it is, there is a universal, I I think a universal sense of uh, being fully present and aware. And, um, and it's, it's something that modern life, actively works against uh and it, with all of our distractions and our <laughs> for example phone notifications yeah and all of that that keeps us constantly wanting to scroll social media or uh you know uh, go out and engage and one of the things that was so beautiful about lockdown for so many people was that it slowed us all down mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. and that's just really a return to to who we are and to mindfulness and and my uh uh experience with mindfulness, I didn't know what it was until I started studying Buddhism. I mean, I, I, I knew through my, you know, sort of Christian upbringing about, you know, a prayer and um, appreciating, you know, your blessings and all that, which is a, also kind of mindfulness, but I didn't ever use the word mindfulness until I started studying Buddhism. Mm-hmm. But I've always, I mean, even when I was a kid living in the suburbs of Michigan, uh, just outside Detroit, um, I used to I figured out how to take the screen out of my window so that I could go climb out on the roof and look at the moon. And, um, you know, I, I would always find a way to appreciate nature no matter where I was, even if it was like when I was a kid and would, there was an area, we lived in a suburb and there was a, if you went behind some houses, there was an open field and I would just go and be in that field and look at the trees um, and I've always found a place, no matter where I am, that I can appreciate nature and 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 that kind of um, quiet contemplation and and and, and mindfulness, yeah. um, even before I had language to call it that. So one thing that um, I sometimes am troubled by is that I get beautiful, beautiful emails from people who've read my book. Or, or messages if they see my um, Instagram or Facebook, and they say, um, you're so lucky to be there, I don't have those things. Yeah. And and that breaks my heart because, I, I yes, I'm, I'm so lucky. I am in deeply in touch with how lucky I am. Yeah. But you are too. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that, you know, there are different, you know, people, everyone has a kind of struggle and some people have a lot of challenges thrown at them, but we, we can all be mindful. It doesn't matter where you live or, or, or what's going on in your life. And in fact, sometimes when you're faced with real difficulty, it's even more important to create the space to be mindful. Yeah. And even if it's just saying, you know, I'm going to sit here for five minutes and do nothing but count my breath. You, that's all you need to do. You don't need to go to a, a, a mystic or to a, a, a Zen teacher. You can sit down and count your breath for five minutes. Right. Anybody can do that. And that's so important for all of us. And, and I, 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 
I'm always a little bit heartbroken when people think, oh, you can do that because you live in the middle of this gorgeous place and I can't because I live in a city or whatever it yeah. is. And that's just not true. But like most things, you have to, you can't be told that. You have to experience it. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. like I, I totally, especially during this last year, delved into meditation and all that stuff because I had no other choice. Otherwise, yeah. I, uh, if I didn't, I don't know where I'd be, you know, like it was, I had to, yeah. to work on that. And I think a lot of us did. I think this, this time taught us a lot about ourselves. I think that's what this yep. was for. Um, talk, and it's, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because that, that brought up the word safety for me, like a safe place. It's mm. certainly very easy for, for us to think that you're in a safe place, not just at the olive grove, but New Zealand itself. Yeah. Um, yep. Right. I mean, you were you were one of the first places to be the safe zone of the the virus, um, yep. mostly for gun violence. But I've heard you talk about the you know when you had that shooting years ago, um, mm-hmm. or a few years ago, whenever that was. It was not too long ago. The mosque shooting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and where you have this kind of shocking idea that. For me, in my mind, New Zealand was like this place. Uh, it was the Lord of the Rings. Like this is this place that's yeah, always yeah. safe. And you kind of have this idea where, um, and even when I, I think in my mind, I was I was thinking kind of just these outlandish thoughts about when we when first the virus first happened, we didn't know what it was. Yeah, you start putting, having these scenarios. Okay, well, if if I had to go somewhere, where is a safe place? And New Zealand, was, New Zealand was one of those places. So then you start thinking, okay, if New Zealand's not, then where's the next place? Well, it's going to have to be off this planet. It's going to have to be <laughs> on the moon or whatever, right? And yeah, so you yeah. start thinking okay. these scenarios, which I'm sure you shared as well. So then you yeah. start you start t- thinking about, is there any place that's safe with COVID, with shootings that's, that are happening? Um, I wonder, did that, has that idea itself um, caused you to want to go toward writing sci-fi? Because that's where you're headed now. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting that you say that because as you were talking about that, what was coming to mind for me, um, even before you asked me about uh, writing sci-fi, which I'm I'm just about to publish my my first science fiction thriller called The Last Beekeeper. And the I suddenly was thinking about that because the key, uh, one of the key themes in that book is that uh, it's in a near future where uh, there's a global bee crisis and uh, pollination has been taken over by large mega corporations called bee lords. And there's the last beekeeper, this guy who practices traditional beekeeping. And through uh, some family trauma and a lot of reasons, he wants to find a place that's safe. And so he retreats from the world with his teenage daughter and goes to a small island in Lake Michigan uh, in the book called Gull Island, which is uh, based on a a real island with a different name. It's called Beaver Island in real life. But um, it's all about him trying to find a safe place Mm. and keep himself and his daughter safe. Yeah. And and he finds that this island is not safe. And in fact, there's significant danger on this island. And he then... uh, tries to figure out what's going on and it leads into the kind of mystery of the science fiction thriller. But that whole, and, and you know that I didn't sit down and, and say, I'm going to write about trying to be safe. No, of course <laughs> um, not. Yeah. 
but this story, you know, is it the muse? I don't know. Uh, is yeah. it someone guiding my hand? Um, and hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully they're not sucking my life force. From yeah, me. the alien. Um, yeah, exactly. But um, so I, I, but those things, you know, they play in our subconscious, right? And yeah. in ways that, and they come out in creative uh, acts that we we aren't we aren't even consciously aware of. Uh, so I think, yeah, safety. New Zealand for me is, I'm very very grateful to be in New Zealand. Um, and when I thought that I was writing a book about a guy living in the States and, and it is set in the States, he went to an Island that he thought was safe. <laughs> so, um, yeah, obviously there's yeah. some things that I'm putting through. I think we, there's a lesson that's being learned truly. I mean, certainly for myself about this, you cannot escape yourself first mm. and you can't, you also can't escape the world that you live in. Yeah. Um, what I'm hearing a lot from people that I hear from that, uh, especially from people that are experiencing the negative end of black lives matter. Um, people that are marginalized is that they're beginning to realize that this is not the world they thought it was or hoped that it was yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And I'm having that realization as well. And it's, I think that's the difficult part is that you can't run from the reality and that's the part that we're struggling with and you know what though to me and this is um i know this sounds everything I've, that i have to say obviously comes from a position of white privilege i'm very much in touch with that mm -hmm. when i and i'm watching the stuff happening in the states from a distance now but yet i'm kind of an insider outsider because i was born and raised in the states it's formed my worldview in many ways mm -hmm. um i lived there till i was 31 i'm now 54 so it's been a long time since i've lived there so i'm also viewing it as someone not a part of it today but when i see what's going on with Black Lives Matter and with the Me Too movement, I just think, thank God this is happening because mm. this is the reconciliation that has to happen. And this is the fear that, that the nation needs to go through and not just the states, but the planet. Yeah. The fear that we all need to go through um, in order to get to the other side of that mountain. But we have to go through this. We have to have reconciliation. We have to have an awareness. And people who have always been cloaked in white privilege, like myself, have to realize, oh, wow, it's not been the way I thought for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And that's happening. And of course, there's pushback against it. But yeah. but this is what has to happen to deal with our history. And so in a, in a strange way... Um, I hate to say that I'm grateful for it because I wish that we didn't have to go through it. Yeah. But we have to go through it. Yeah. Do you think um, that's why generally maybe you and maybe just us as a because uh, I'm actually I'm actually watching this Apple Plus series called um, For All Mankind. You may know it. No, I don't know it. Um, I don't know if you have Apple Plus over there, but. Yep. Um, it's yeah, Joel. It's Lord of the Rings. You know, we all live in Hobbit houses. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No televisions, nothing. Um, Joel Kinnaman's in it. It is a reimagination of the 1969 space race and how it may have turned out differently. Oh, wow. And it's really interesting. But I think, you know, there's there's been, a, you know, dozens of series and books and things written about the moon or space in general. And do you think that's why you maybe are so 
connected to the moon. I love the moon too. Every time it's out, I make a point to go outside and watch it. There's this idea of looking out and beyond about what we're capable of. That's always kind of just out of reach, but maybe it's attainable, right? There's, we just want to get there. We just want to accomplish that goal. Um, and maybe that's what the kind of love of sci-fi is. I have a feeling based upon your childhood dreams of being in a transparent spaceship that, uh, you kind of always had this idea about the stars and the, the what's out there. And does that play into maybe dreams that you have? Um, I think, uh, yes, it's always been kind of part of my, uh, sort of psyche, this kind of, you know, uh, imagining all these things. There's actually one of my defining or, or very memorable moments of embarrassment from childhood was back when there was uh, like old home home movies. Um, we had, uh, I grew up in Michigan, we'd moved to Minnesota and we'd come back to visit. And my mom had some home movies of our new house in Minnesota. And we were showing them in a neighbor's basement on the back of a, you know, sheet or something. Yeah. And we had forgotten that at the end of this reel of film, she had filmed me, uh, dancing around the backyard by myself with a big stick. <laughs> and I was like, I was 10 maybe, but, uh, I was so embarrassed that suddenly I was sitting with all our old friends and now here I am dancing around like an idiot by myself in the backyard. Living um, your best life. Yeah. But the thing that I will never forget is at the time I was having this very active um, uh, Im- imaginative play where I was uh, a tap dancer who'd been abducted by aliens and was <laughs> fighting his way out of the spaceship. Um, by oh tap my dancing. gosh. Of course you were. By tap I'm dancing. That, you know, yeah, of course, as you do. Um, you know, you rely on your strengths. So, <laughs> that's what oh a tap my gosh, I love. And you were 11. Yeah, 10 or 11. Oh um, my uh, gosh. And uh, old so enough great. to be embarrassed that my friends were actually seeing this. You were embarrassed um, because but, you were you, you were being seen of creating this like amazing storyline. That's what you're embarrassed about, not the dancing. You're like, wait a minute, that was my private <laughs> moment creating this like. <laughs> world and i didn't even know that she had filmed it like she filmed it from the, the the window at the house and um so it was a but but i guess that that comes to mind when you're talking about that because i always had that kind of very active fantasy life yeah and yeah. um and, that, and i always read you know like uh the uh, Anne McCaffrey books when I was a kid and uh, uh, Madeline Langle, the wind in the door and swiftly tilting planet, all these kind of fantasy things as a kid. Uh, so for me, it's how um, it's just part of that augmented reality that, you know, why would I live yeah. in just one world when I have all these things, all these places I can go. Right. Yeah. I'm, um, uh, I'm, I mean, I was that imaginative too, but I would, I would do like real life scenarios. Like I talked to my, I was, I would pretend to do things. I did the teacher thing. I did like, right. I owned my own office. I was an office manager, um, <laughs> you know, a real estate right. developer, um, you know, and I was like eight or something. Um, That's fantastic. And I, I somehow, I don't know how I did this at, at one point when, you know, when you go to the store and you hear them make announcements over the intercom, I was yeah, like, yeah. I want to do that at my house. Like, <laughs> Somehow I talked my mom into buying this ridiculous system that like ter- like uh, activates speakers so that you if you press something, some sequence on the phone, you can make an intercom call. Yeah. Yeah. Like and thinking back on that, like 
what parent would buy their kid like a professional intercom system just so they could make a announcements great, in the house? A great parent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, you know, and I, and I actually, I had my own little radio show. So this is, you know, this is of course uh, you did. art coming to life. I had my own little radio show. My brother was like every guest and he would have to change his voice. Um, <laughs> And I had like music and stuff. Oh man, that's that's what you know. Kids do that, and that's yeah. what's so great. And we, you know, we we are taught not to do that as we get older, and I mm. think that's just so sad. Well, that brings me to one of my last questions, and that is, you talk a little bit about, and I'm glad you did this, but you definitely had a little bit of imposter syndrome. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's another. That's one of the last highlights that I made of your book, and that is. Well, I'll just read the whole thing. Well, who cares? By then, I found out that I had begun to approach olive oil the same way I had always approached writing. It comes out of a love for doing it, out of a deep-seated desire to create something good, to send something out into the world that hopefully people will enjoy. But the flip side of that love is fear. Fear that it will be rejected, that the thing you put your heart and soul into is really, in the end, just a small, shabby thing that nobody likes. Yeah. And... That I so felt that. I mean, I felt that with this podcast for like, who in the hell wants to listen to this thing? Will I even, I mean, look who I'm like competing against. I'm in the same category as Oprah. Oh, that's great. I um, love that. <laughs> and you watch know, out, Oprah. Yeah, exactly. Watch out, Oprah. Um, so, what would be your message as you're now a successful writer and you? And you're also a successful, um, uh, what's the word? I would say conqueror of the road now. (laughs) Uh, And then you're like a um, farm boy now. You are a party planner. You've done all the things. So you've passed the, you've passed the fear. So for someone listening that may, because I love kind of a theme that's developed of my podcast is this idea of dreaming and art and trying to make yeah. those are the people that make the world turn, but it's difficult to, I mean, it's not an easy one. So no. everybody, I think at some point in their life, no matter how successful they are, experience imposter syndrome. Like what, you know, is what I have, does my, what I have even matter. And I think as a writer, I have a couple of writer friends and writers tend to be methodical and how they approach those things because writing is something that you do a million times before you have a something you want to present. Yeah. So what would be your last thought about how to get past the road of imposter syndrome to get to the other side of paradise? I think for, for me in my experience, you know, it never goes away. Mm. Um, and, and it's, it's, uh, there's some advice about writing, which I think is true of life. You have to learn which of your instincts not to trust. Ooh. And so it's really, it's good about writing if you're, you know, sometimes people have an instinct to, to over-describe something or whatever it is, and they need to learn which of their instincts not to trust. As Oprah says, writing. that's a tweet. Let's tweet it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and I don't, I wish that I could remember where I first read that or who said it, cause I'd love to give them attribution, but, um, it's so true, not just about writing, but about life, mm-hmm. because I, you know, I still, I still think like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a science fiction thriller. Who am I doing a science fiction thriller? Right. Uh, you know, mm. this is, you know, what are you doing, uh, Jared? Um, and that 
uh, that voice, which I also love um, uh, more wisdom from an unlikely place. Um, RuPaul talks about your inner <laughs> oh. saboteur. Yes. Um, and we all have that voice in our head. And there was one um, episode of RuPaul's Drag Race where um, RuPaul made all the drag queens dress up as that voice inside their head and then oh. had to say those bad things. Wow. So great. Um, but that kind of inner saboteur, your inner editor, if you're a writer, whatever it is, that voice which says, don't, you can't, this yeah. is bad. Yeah. Um, you have to sort of, for me, it's like I go, oh, okay, there's that voice. Yep. I know that voice. It's always there. So, and, and again, going back to Elizabeth Gilbert, she has really good advice, advice about this. She always says, look, fear, I know you're here. Mm -hmm. You can, you can be in the car for the drive, but you have to sit in the backseat and you cannot drive. (laughs) Um, And, you know, so I've, for me, I've learned, okay, this is an instinct I need to know not to trust. The one that tells me you you can't do that. That voice is just trying to keep you safe. Fear is trying to keep you safe. Mm. But it's a a misguided voice because that voice. It's an imposter voice. Well, it is. And it will will not keep you safe. It will make you unhappy. Mm. Um, And so you need to say, look, there it is. I've heard you so many times and so many times. And that doesn't mean you are guaranteed success because you might fail. But then the point is, what do you learn from that so mm. that next time you feel better, right? Right. Um, and so for me, I still have that feeling, but I've learned, okay, that does not serve me. Let it go. So you get to know your imposter voice is what you're saying. You Absolutely. make friends with it. Yeah. Yeah. Recognize it. Know which of your instincts not to trust. Mm-hmm. That instinct which says don't get on that road. Yeah. You know what? I know you've told me that before. And if I would listened to you, I would have lost out on one of the greatest joys of my life. Exactly. Well, um, thank you so much, Jared. This, thank you so much for taking the time two times to do this. My pleasure. This has been really, really, um, really enjoyable. Thank you. I just had never considered that pandemic reading would lead me to having a discussion with you for over two hours uh, and I, and meeting a new, making a new friend in New Zealand. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's been really a joy chatting with you. So thank you so much for that. And, and, you know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, when you put stuff out into the world, it comes back to you in ways yeah. that you can never predict. And I, I view this conversation with you as one of those things. It's been a real pleasure. Thank, thank you. you so much. Well, I hope that when the renovation is complete in November that you've, uh, included a guest room so that, Absolutely. so that when I come to New Zealand, I'll take a visit to the Grove. You can have your choice of rooms. <laughs> I will. I take you up on that for sure. Excellent. 